my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and part of our preaching team. And as Seth said, we are commemorating uh, one year later, uh, one year since COVID really uh, hit us all in a significant way. And so um, what I want to do today is uh, read from Psalm 23. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, today's not really going to be uh, an exposition of Psalm 23. We'll refer to it at a few points, but it's going to be uh, just read over us as a way to remind us of our comforter. So Psalm 23, if you have uh, the ability, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The word of the Lord. You can be seated. What a shepherd we have. Amen? What a comforter. And it's been interesting to reflect on this past week a year ago. Uh, man, a lot changed over the course of that week. I remember on Monday of that week uh, getting an email uh, from Matthew, who kind of runs our operations and was one of our worship leaders, and he said, hey, you know, this coronavirus thing seems to be kind of taken off. Uh, maybe we should make some adjustments to our service this week. Maybe we should, uh, you know, not do the handshake time, and uh, maybe we should tell the greeters not to handshake at the door, and let's figure out maybe a different way to do communion. And, and we said, yeah, okay, let's do that. Well, then by Tuesday, I was going this is a huge overreaction. Like, we can still shake hands. We, don't, we can take communion the normal way. We can pass it. Like, what? I mean, come on, really? And then Wednesday, everything changed. Wednesday, March 11th, 2020. Um, that was the day that uh, Anthony Fauci testified before Congress. He said, quote, it's going to get worse. Now, he wasn't right about everything, but he was right about that. And it got worse. And later that day, the World Health Organization declared that COVID-19 was, in fact, a pandemic. Now, this is important because I hear a lot of us, including myself, misstate this. I always want to call it a global pandemic. And uh, my daughter has informed me that it is not a global pandemic because that's redundant. Pandemic means it's global. So we all have to stop saying global pandemic. It's just a pandemic, okay? But the World Health Organization said now it's a pandemic. Um, and then I remember that night, um, our in-laws were in town from Ohio, and we went out to Barrio Queen in uh, Queen Creek and went out to dinner, and we're sitting out there. And actually, as we were waiting for our table, uh, someone was checking their phone, and it was like, oh boy, this really is serious. Tom Hanks 
has come down with COVID. Breaking news, Tom Hanks has coronavirus. Oh my goodness, that's incredible. And then Trump had a a statement from the Oval Office where he um, shut down travel from Europe, and it was like, oh man, this is actually getting pretty serious. And then an NBA game was canceled. By the time we were done with dinner, the NBA season was canceled, and we were standing there in Barrio Queen looking at Target going, should we go get some toilet paper? And the correct answer to that question was, yes, we should have gone and gotten toilet paper, but we didn't. Um, and it was just, I just remember that night being like, oh my gosh, everything changed tonight. And then Thursday uh, was the day that March Madness was canceled. As a college basketball fan, that was kind of a disappointment. Uh, that was canceled. Um, and we started kind of going, okay, well, what does this mean for church on Sunday? Uh, they're saying to avoid large groups. We started saying, well, what, what if we need to do a live stream? We never live streamed our services. We'd only just recorded them and then posted them later. And so our tech team was kind of messing around with that. And then Friday, we met as elders. Our elder team met, and then we had a larger redemption church uh, meeting, and um, And we had a call with the Arizona Department of Health, and their overwhelming sort of guidance to churches was, hey, for this Sunday only, (laughs) suspend services. And so that was the decision that we made. We said, hey, this Sunday only, we're suspending services. By the following Tuesday, they were suspended indefinitely. But we'll be back by Easter, right? And thus began that interesting season of online services, drive-through graduations, the All Right Show. Any fans of The All Right Show out there? Uh, if you are new to our church, you should go on our YouTube uh, page and watch All Right Show episodes. That's what the youth group uh, folks did. They just said, hey, we're going to create a fun show, and they did. Uh, we did M25 collections every week. You guys would drive in, and you would deliver stuff, and you would give stuff. The amount of money, the amount of goods, the amount of things, right? Some of you, like, we were in a place where you couldn't get toilet paper for yourself, and you were, getting, you were giving it away so that we could help some of the less fortunate in our community. And so that was an incredible season. But man, what a season. I don't know about you. I find that as I get older, time seems to go faster. Anybody agree with that? <laughs> Well, you get the time, the, the time just flies. And my hypothesis for why that is, is because most of the time, day after day, week after week, month after month, it's just the same, right? When you're in school and you're young, there's more seasonality to things. When you're an adult, it just picks up speed. You just keep doing the same thing over and over. But this past year has been like a dog year. It's been like one year equals seven, right? Like I could tell you, here's what March looked like, and here's what April looked like, and here's what May looked like, and here's what we did in August, and here's what we did in October. And I could not normally do that about a typical year, but this year I could. It feels like one lifetime compressed into this year. And so I want to ask the question today, one year later, what did we learn One year later, what did we learn? And specifically, what did we learn that we have to remember going forward? What did we learn that, God forbid, when COVID-39 hits, we go, oh, wait, I've been through this. But even more important, in between now and then, when things are going great, when the economy's sailing again, and unemployment numbers drop, and everything's great, what do we have to remember then too? That's what I want to reflect on. Now, here's the thing I'm mindful of today is I'm mindful um, that for some of you, uh, COVID-19 really wasn't the biggest challenge you faced this year. Maybe it made the challenges you faced harder or it made them more difficult, but some of you, this, this wasn't the biggest challenge. Your biggest challenge was that you, 
You lost a loved one. And that dominated your year. Some of it, like you've had whole career upheaval, and that dominated things. Some of it, for you, the hardest part was what was happening with the mental health of your kids. And maybe that got worsened by COVID-19, but it was hard before that. Some of you, you've had to move, you've had to make a big transition, you've had to change things in a big way, and that was the dominant trial of your year. It got harder from COVID, but this wasn't the main thing. So I just am not here assuming that everybody experienced this as the dominant trial, and yet I think there are things from it that we can all learn. So I'm going to pull out three lessons. Man, there's so many things I had to leave out of this message, but three lessons one year later, what have we learned that we have to remember going forward? Let's pray, and then we'll dive into it. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness over this year. Help us to learn and help us to trust you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, here's the first main lesson, is that we do not have control. Do I hear an amen? We do not have control, but we also do not have to be afraid. We do not have control, but we do not have to be afraid. If there's anything this year has showed us, it is that we are utterly out of control. Everything is subject to change. Everything is listed day to day. I have a friend who played baseball for 10 years in the big leagues, and he would always laugh when someone was on an injury report listed as day to day. He's like, who's not day to day? Everybody's day to day. Even now when I walk around here on a Sunday morning, people go, hey, Luke, are you preaching today? I go, well, maybe. We'll see. I don't know. I'm scheduled to, God willing. We'll see if I make it the next half hour. I don't know. Everything is subject to change. We've learned this year that life is fragile that it's easily disrupted, it's easily displaced, and it's very hard to fix. Once it gets displaced, especially for us just regular people who don't really have any power over anything, we just, all we can do is sit there and feel frustrated at how it can't get fixed and we can't fix it. We are out of control, but we don't have to be afraid. James, the brother of Jesus, writes about our lack of control in James 4. He says this, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We like to think we're in control. We like to think we have our plans. Any other planners in the house? I mean, I just, I love to plan. I I derive a great deal of comfort from my plans, right? And this has been a devastating year for plans. They just keep getting ruined. They just keep getting changed. And what James says is you're a mist. You're grasping for something that you can't have. And I think the reason why we grasp for, for control so much is because we live so much of our lives afraid. We're afraid of what could happen. We're afraid of what might happen. We're afraid of what will happen. We're afraid of what we've experienced. We're afraid of people. We're afraid of being hurt again. We're afraid of going through that again. And so we grasp for control and we crave control, but it's like trying to grasp the mist. You can't do it. You can't grab it. You can't contain it. You can't hold it because you are not in control. And the lack of control then, interestingly, as we are doing this to try to alleviate our fears actually makes us more afraid. We're afraid, so we crave control. We don't get it, so we're more afraid. And it's hard because we're afraid because we don't trust God's heart. Because we know he's in control. 
We know he has the power, but we doubt at a heart level if he's actually good. Wasn't that actually the original temptation that Adam and Eve faced? That's fundamentally what it was. Adam and Eve had everything they ever wanted, and Satan comes along and says, yeah, but God's holding out on you. He's not good. And along comes Psalm 23. And it says, listen, we lack control, but our shepherd doesn't, and our shepherd is good. Again, look at it. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. The shepherd has control, and the shepherd is good. So what do we do when we're afraid because we lack control? We have to surrender to the kindness of the shepherd. Some of you that have uh, toddlers, you know that experience where your kid gets so tired that they are an insane person, right? Like, they're kind of always borderline that way anyway, but like, there's that point where they just get so, so tired, and the only thing that they actually need, the only thing that will really help is sleep, and yet they're so tired they can't sleep, and they're, they throw tantrums, and they fidget and they and what you have to do as a parent is is you you get into their bed um if you're really brave you let them come into your bed i wouldn't recommend that but some of you that's your style hey whatever um or or you lay them down there on the couch but you have to you have to get to the point where they have to surrender to your kindness one of my daughters she had we called it the off switch we would just rub her right here just rub her or you, you put your hand on their back and you give them light little love touches. And at some point they stop squirming and they, and they surrender to your kindness. And that's what God's inviting us to. God's saying, hey, the only thing you really need is my rest. The only thing you really need are the pastors I'm gonna lead you to. The only thing you really need is my touch. Quit squirming, quit fighting, quit worrying. Trust me. And so we don't have to be afraid because we have a good shepherd, but we have to surrender to the kindness of that shepherd. And one of the ways we surrender to the kindness of the shepherd is actually by moving toward him in prayer. It's interesting, even just the act of prayer is an act of dependence that's saying, God, I can't do this. God, I can't fix this. God, I need you. There's an interesting move between verses 3 and 4 in Psalm 23. In up to verse 3, uh, it's all referring to God as he. But then in verse 4, it moves to you. He leads me besides the waters. He restores my soul. He leads me. He, he, he. And then in verse 4, you are with me. What you see here is a move of a, of a afraid sheep. Sheep are very fearful animals. And this sheep in this narrative is going, oh, it's you. It's not he. It's not an impersonal God. It's not an impersonal force. It is God himself, the shepherd. We move toward him in prayer. I love the verse in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 12. Mark Andrus has quoted this to me a number of times over this year. I've so appreciated it. It's this. We do not know what to do, Jehoshaphat prayed. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We don't know how to fix this. We can't fix this. If we got put in charge of it, we'd be the one to blame. But our eyes are on you. 
We do not have control, but we do not have to be afraid. Friends, let's remember that because whether it's a health issue or anything else, you don't have, we don't have control. Here's a second lesson that we got to hold on to in the coming days. Number two, the best parts of life aren't digital. So we must lean back into embodied living. We had a reflection time as staff. We're just kind of going, hey, what have we learned as a staff? And the first thing someone said was, online learning stinks. That was the first thing we wrote up on the board, right? And I was like, you sound like a parent that has been trying to help your child navigate online learning. Yes, it does stink. Here's the thing what we found this year, we've all experienced this, is that technology is a helpful supplement, but it is an insufficient substitute. It's a helpful supplement, it's not a good substitute, right? Thank God for technology. Thank God for the things that technology has allowed us to do. Thank God for the ways we've been able to continue to communicate the gospel. Thank God for the way we've been able to stay connected through technology. It's a nice supplement, but it's a horrible substitute, right? I'm so thankful for technology as someone that lives across the country from my wife's parents and and some of her siblings and some of my kids' cousins. Like, I'm so thankful for FaceTime and for Zoom and for Skype and for text and for Marco Polo and for all these things that we can do to help stay connected. Praise God for that. But it's nothing like when we go back there in the summer and you sit and you laugh and you make memories. It's hard to schedule memories. They kind of just happen. You know, I remember a few years ago, it was the 4th of July, we were all sitting back out there on the back porch, and I made a comment about how I wondered what the fireworks looked like from the other side. And we all realized how stupid of a comment that is. (laughs) And we just started laughing, and, and, and they're laughing, and I'm laughing, and I'm laughing at how stupid I am, and they're laughing at how stupid I am, and we're laughing at how we're all laughing so hard. And we just, I mean, we laughed and laughed and laughed for 20 minutes. And, and it's one of those things, you've had this, where you're laughing, you don't even know why, and you're like, when I explain this to someone later from a stage, they are going to think this is funny, right? And, and it's like, but in that moment, like, you're just, you're caught up in this experience of laughter. You can't have that. I've never had that on Zoom. That stuff happens in the margins of life. That stuff happens in the unplanned parts of life. And the unplanned parts of life are the parts that are embodied. Think about what technology can't do. It can't deliver hugs It can't deliver handshakes. It can't deliver eye contact, right? Think about it. You're on the call. You're usually looking at yourself. (laughs) At best, you're kind of looking at the person, but you're never looking in their eyes. You can't sit in suffering with technology. Some of you, this is what's been so hard this year. You've had a loved one in the hospital, or you've had a loved one or a friend who's been grieving and you couldn't go be with them. And so you texted and you called and you encouraged and you emailed and you did what you could do, but what you wanted was to be there with them. I don't know of anybody who's gone, hey, let's just schedule a FaceTime call and sort of sit there and look at each other. You wouldn't do it. But that's what you need. Live music. I mean, 
You can go on YouTube and watch lots of great music, but it ain't the same as when you feel the bass thumping in your chest, right? Some of you are like, I know, I missed it back when I was at my house. I liked it back then. I, I used to laugh when we were all at home, like, hey, if you still are complaining about the volume of the music, that's a you problem because you have the remote in your hand, you know? But when you, when you come and you experience church, or I can't wait to experience a concert, right? There's just something about the live music that is different, the singing together, the hearing other voices. There's all this stuff that happens that's unpleasant. I remember the first time our elders got together to pray in person. For months we had been praying over Zoom, and there's that awkwardness where you're like, are they done? And you start praying, and then you realize you're muted. So someone else starts, and then you're like, should I be praying with my eyes open so I can tell who's praying? But I feel like I should check. I mean, it's just not great. And then you get in a room, and you pray with people. You go, oh, this feels right. Watching sports on TV with no crowd, this makes no sense. I'm not going to be at the game either way, but I'm watching, and the fact that no one's at the game makes it worse. Why is this? It's because we are embodied souls. We are not brains on a stick. We're embodied This is why so much of the Christian life involves the body. It's why we don't just sign a contract when we become a Christian. It's why we get baptized. It's a bodily experience. It's why we don't just go, all right, everybody, on the count of three, remember Jesus. One, two, three. Right? We take communion because we're embodied. We have these bodies. And, and here's, here's what's so interesting. I, I found it over this past year. It's so interesting, the conversation about what is essential and what is non-essential. How did you feel the first time you found out you weren't very essential? <laughs> You're like, I kind of, I don't know. I, I feel essential to me. I don't know. But, but here's what's so interesting. If the goal is simply to survive, then you go, okay, what does it take to survive? And you strip away everything. You just find, here's what's essential but you can't live that way for a year. You can't live that way very long or you go crazy. And all the stuff that gives life flavor and depth and texture is the stuff that happens in the margins. It's the stuff that's not essential and yet it makes you go, maybe it is essential. Maybe we really need this. Some experts are actually predicting that we may have another Roaring Twenties. You know the Roaring Twenties, right? This was the reaction uh, back in the 1920s to the Great War and all the austerity that went along with that, and then followed by the, the flu of 1918. And the Roaring Twenties, people say, was this overload of sensory experiences. It was music, and it was fashion, and it was dancing, and it was this explosion of that kind of sensory culture because everyone was so starved for it. And I don't know if that will happen, but that feels awfully plausible to me. Why? Because we are embodied. And so here's the takeaway for us is that we have to manage our risk, right? Like this this message is not a the pandemic's over. We're not spiking the football. COVID's still a very real thing. And we have to manage our personal levels of risk. Some of you watching at home, you have to manage your level of risk. But here's my encouragement to all of us. Lean in toward embodied experiences as soon as you can and as much as you can. Be cautious. Be smart. Be wise. But lean in. We need this. 
Right? Some of you that are watching right now, you're, you're going to have to be in this situation for a while because of certain health concerns and things that you have. Others of you, you could be here. Others of you, you have been here, and you're punting on being here because it's just easier to not be here. And I want to encourage you, come back. For those of you who you'd love to be here and you just can't, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to those of you who are flipping pancakes and scrolling on your phone. <laughs> come back. And I want to say to you, listen, it's easier to go, do we want to get the kids up and get them in the thing? Do we want to fight on the way? Let's just do this. But we need embodied experiences. And not just Sundays. Because here's the thing we've learned. We've learned through this experience that church is community, not content. Church is community. Church is relationships. It's not sermons. It's not messages. It's not songs. It's not content. It's the community. This is what we've seen. This is what we've experienced, right? I think the whole conversation around online church is an interesting one, right? I would make the argument that online church is more actually a thing in, a, in an RC that's meeting over Zoom than it is an online service, because at least over Zoom, you have the community, you have the connection, you have the relationship. You can just watch anything on demand anytime. And that's not watching and experiencing church. That's watching other people go to church. We need these embodied things. It's been so interesting to me as I've just watched our church. Our church is like pretty much every church I know. Uh, every church pretty much is reporting now somewhere between about 30 to about 60% of their previous attendance is back on Sundays. That makes sense. There's a lot of different stages of life and different things. What's been fascinating here, do you know what the percentage of students, junior high and high school, that have returned in person is? It's over 100%. It's actually grown. Now, it didn't start that way, right? Initially, there was an online experience, but it wasn't long before those folks even started coming to both things. We were like, all right, we're just going to do it in person. Now, listen, I know the risk calculation is totally different on COVID-19 for young people, but but that's interesting. The generation that's most digitally native, the generation that we all ask for help on how to access the content, <laughs> you know what? They don't care about the content. They might have a better view of church than we do. They care about the relationship. And it's fascinating in our student ministry because you can't be part of our student ministry without being in a small group. Right? The way it happens is there's large group teaching and then there's small group time. But as adults, you can opt in or out of the small group experience. You can just have your whole church experience be sitting in a row. And my invitation, my encouragement to you in this next season is to get into a circle. If you're not in a group, if you're not in a community, if there's not someone who is connected to you, helping encourage you and pray for you and challenge you, and you do the same for them, then this is a time for you to go, okay, in this next season, I need community. Because part of why... For some of us, we were so lonely in the past was because we didn't have it. And so now's the time to have it before the next thing happens. We need circles, not just rows, not just couches. We need circles. In April, there's going to be our next round of Rooted. That's a class that we do here. It's a four-week class that really helps you understand the church and how to get in a circle, how to get involved. I hope you'll participate. I hope you'll join in because we need community because the best parts of life aren't digital. Here's a third lesson is that trials reveal what we're trusting. So we must center ourselves on Jesus. 
Listen, the the trial of COVID-19, the trial of racial unrest, the trial of the 2020 election, the trial of you name it, doesn't cause our problems, it reveals them. The, The trials reveal what's there. They unearth what was already latent. And, and I think it's just something that we have to acknowledge. It, it's, sometimes people will say this to me. They'll, they'll say, you know, my problem with Christianity is it's just for weak people. You know, Christianity is just a crutch. To which I go, well, of course it is. But everybody has a crutch. Who, who doesn't have a crutch? What's your crutch? Oh, your crutch is shopping. Your crutch is food. Your crutch is prescription drugs. Your crutch is weed. Your crutch is alcohol. Your crutch is surfing the internet. Your crutch is a family member that you have asked to be your God. Your crutch is your kids' activities. See, everybody's living for something. Everybody's finding their support from something. Everybody's deriving their strength from something. The question is, what are you deriving it from? And this whole thing revealed that most of what we're deriving our strength from, most of what we're crutching onto is not going to hold up. And so Jesus has to be our center. Here's the reality. Suffering can take away every other hope. Pain, suffering, trials. If your hope is in health, this year probably took it away. If your hope is in your friends, this year took those away. If your hope is in a really exciting, fulfilling career, this year probably took that away. But if your hope's in Jesus, then suffering and trials and pain and loss can't take him away. In fact, all those things do is strengthen your need for him and your desire for him. Now, this isn't automatic. We have to center ourselves on Jesus. Uh, Some of you who've been around a while um, have heard me quote Tim Keller. Anyone ever hear me quote Tim Keller? Like only about a thousand times over the last 12 years, right? I was giving a tour once of the church to someone. They said, where where do you keep the Tim Keller quotes? (laughs) Point taken. Okay, I like Tim Keller. Well, some of you may not know, Tim Keller's a pastor in uh, New York City, an author of a bunch of different books. And in this past year, he has pancreatic cancer. Pancreatic cancer is about the worst you can have. He's doing okay so far. But I've heard him speak in a podcast, and he recently just wrote an article in The Atlantic, for The Atlantic, which I love the, just the witness to a secular world of what it is to suffer with the hope of Jesus. But one of the points he makes in there, he had written a book about death called On Death, And he said, interestingly, when I get this prognosis, it didn't automatically make me okay. Right? Just knowing the truth is not enough when your life starts crumbling. You have to activate your centering on Jesus. You have to lean into him. You have to trust him. You have to surrender to him. You have to pray to him. And he is the one that we should center ourselves on. He's the one who knows what's best. He's the one who has walked in the suffering we've walked in. He's the one who has suffered in our place. And he is the one who has conquered our biggest fear. Look at what it says in Hebrews chapter 2. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these. In other words, because we have flesh and blood, because we are embodied souls, Jesus had a body. Jesus lived among us. 
Why? So that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. What has been the biggest fear in the last 12 months? The fear of death. And maybe you escaped it this time. But Jesus came embodied. Jesus suffered on the cross. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose so that we wouldn't have to be afraid of death. Listen, there is something worse than sickness and death. It's living without Jesus. And if we will center ourselves on him, then when the next trial hits, we'll be okay. And when the next calamity strikes, We'll hold together. Listen, the end of the story does not have to be us falling apart if we have Christ. I'm not rooting for more trials, but until Jesus comes back, the war continues. But as we'll sing in just a moment, it won't be long. And the war will be over. And you can begin to experience the spoils of that victory now if you trust in Christ. If you surrender to him as your shepherd. If you walk with him through the valley of the shadow of death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, your generosity, your sustaining power. God, I pray now for those who are continuing to suffer. I pray those, for those who are continuing to hurt. I pray for all of us as we continue at different moments to be afraid. And Father, I pray that our uh, ability to conquer fear wouldn't come from within us, but that it would come from looking at you. I pray that you'd give us the humility to crawl up on your lap and have you rub our backs and remind us that you're with us. God, thank you for your faithfulness. We pray in Christ's name, amen.